it's very unlikely that certain people are entirely left-brained or, or entirely right-brained. So right. It doesn't, doesn't quite work that simply. And it also does relate in some ways to the learning styles myth because a lot of teachers and other entrepreneurs will say, oh, gee, let's give this person a test to see whether they're more a left brain or right brain person or something, and then try to then give them some advice as to how to proceed with that. It's very unlikely that's going to work because, again, what people forget is that, guess what, we're complicated as, as humans, and rarely are people entirely verbal or entirely spatial, entirely analytical. A lot of these things are very domain-specific, so many of us can be quite analytical in the case of some problems, especially something we know well. And then when it comes to other things, particularly when strong emotion kicks in, when we have motivated reasoning, but oftentimes logic analysis goes out the window. Yep, yep, yep. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. Thanks for your kind comments on Massimo Piliucci. He was our most popular guest so far. We talked about stoicism, mindfulness, science and pseudoscience, and scientism. If you haven't heard that episode, it's the one that immediately precedes this one. Today, we have a fascinating guest. We're going to talk about psychological mythology. How many of those things that you believe from the media or from your reading or from your common sense understanding of how people tick might be mythology? And if they're false, how many of them might be harmful? So before we get onto that, uh, let me tell you how I met Scott Lillianfeld. I went to write a book on business change. And during the writing of that book, I wrote a list of change myths. And of course, while I was at that, I wondered whether there were, like my list of change myths, a list of psychological myths. I stumbled across Scott's book, which is called 50 Psychological Myths and How They're Harmful. After all, change involves changing people, which is psychology. So what were some of the myths that I still had? And I discovered in the pages of that book many, many things, and I have training in psychology, that I believe that were false, that were demonstrably false by research. And so I became interested in his work. And then later on, while writing the book, I wanted to write a chapter on neuroscience. And sure enough, Scott Lillianfeld has another book on neuroscience called Brainwashed. The Trouble with Mindless Neuroscience. So as an irresistible title, I picked it up. And basically, he says that we are overstating the case. And many of the applications that you read in the popular press, this is your mind, this is your brain on sex, or this is your brain on gluten. Those are overstated claims. And so we need to be cautious. And Scott and I get into that later on. And then finally, Scott's most recent research project is on mental illness. And his book, just recently out, is called... Facts and Fictions in Mental Health, and we get to talk about that. So those are the three topics for today, psychological myths, neuroscience, and mental illness. I want to invite you again to review the podcast on iTunes, and if you do, send me an email saying that you've done so, and I will send you a book from one of our best-selling authors. So I'm very excited to get into this. Scott Lillianfeld, professor at Emory University, trained as a clinical psychologist, much more broadly interested now. His topics are assessment of personality disorders, especially psychopathic personality disorders, personality assessment, classification and diagnosis of psychiatric diseases, pseudoscience and clinical psychology, evidence-based clinical practice, and scientific thinking and how it applies to psychology, and the philosophy of psychology. So I'm very excited to get onto the show. And now let me welcome Scott Lillianfeld. Scott, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. I'm a huge fan of your work, as I, I said, but let me get right to the point if I wait. Why might psychological myths, such as those that you cover in your book, Myths of Popular Psychology, why might it be harmful for people to believe those? Well, thanks for having me, Paul. It's good to good to be here, and I appreciate the kind words. So, um, one of the things that motivated us to write our, our book and and some other writings is that, in our view, what uh, my late good friend Barry Beierstein called psychomythology can can sometimes be not just mis misleading but but potentially harmful, as you know. And one of the things we detail in the book, and we try to do elsewhere, is is the myriad ways in which some of these myths can not just uh, trip up psychology students and even some of us psychology educators, but also cause 
real world uh, problems. So myths about memory, for example, can, in our view, cause all kinds of uh, problems, recall kind of havoc in the courtroom and maybe sometimes lead to false confessions and lead to incorrect eyewitness identifications, false beliefs about emotions can maybe screw up our relationships, particularly if we um, we expect that certain uh, emotions are going to change more rapidly than we, we think. Uh, myths about learning, I think, can cause problems in the classroom and lead teachers to use ineffective or harmful interventions and so on. So one, one thing about psychology, I've always viewed it as sort of a double-edged sword. I think one of the wonderful things about psychology is it spreads its tentacles into so many different areas of everyday life, just about every area, which uh, is great. I think the downside, though, is because it seems so familiar to people, it may seem kind of easy because we're all psychologists in everyday life. We have to be psychologists. So we all know about memory and dreams and learning and stuff like that. But we uh, we may uh, <laughs> think we know more than we actually do. Yeah, it's an area rife for cognitive biases, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, we all, as I say, you've been practicing since you're three years old, trying to understand the internal worlds of people, their motivations, their emotional life, their mind, what makes them tick, and all of that. So by the time we get to any kind of reasonable age, we reckon we're, quote-unquote, pretty good with people. And I've met people who are really bad with people who are, think that they're really good with people. <laughs> so... Uh, Versus some people... Are- I know there's some people, I know some clinicians I would describe as very modest, but they're actually remarkably perceptive. So yeah, yeah I'm not people's confidence about how, how good they're as people persons is all that correlated with how good they really are. So. Uh, what's that called? I always forget the name for that. The, there's an inverse correlation between how ignorant someone is and how confident they are in their beliefs. It's a, it's a, I can't recall the... It's called the, the different versions of it, but the most common name is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning-Kruger, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so the sort of the, the double curse of incompetence that we're, we're kind of in the domain. I mean, we're all incompetent in some domains, right? And if you take the domains where we're incompetent, we're kind of incompetent about our incompetence because we don't know enough to know what we don't know. So. That's true. But I mean, someone like that could never get into power, say, like a senator or a president. I mean, it could never happen, right? Well, we, we know that uh, presidents, especially in the U.S., have to be very modest, humble people, <laughs> well aware of their limitations. <laughs> of course, yes. So anyway, let's talk about a couple of these in specifics, because I'm sure listeners, I mean, I always find uh, someone who follows perhaps your line of thought on these things, I get to be the jerk at the dinner party when uh, the adults are talking about, oh, look at those kids, they've had sugar. <laughs> And I should probably hold my tongue, but of course, that's one of the myths of physiology is sugar has no effect on arousal. So it's a, it's a good way to be unpopular. And, and I think one of the ones that's held most dearly by people who do the work that I do in business is learning styles. They love that. That, you know, so many of these things pass for truths, but let's talk about two or three of them and what research actually says. Let's talk maybe first about learning styles, because that's one my my business people love. What's What's up with that? What does the research say? Well, yeah, it's a good one, it's, and it's uh, really hot over here in the U.S. and education and so on, and it's all the rage. So, um, you know, the, you know, the claim is that different kids have different learning style. You know, some kids are better visual learners, or other kids are better verbal learners, and 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 the idea is you try to. It's not an implausible idea. I mean, I think the idea isn't so isn't necessarily so, so silly on the surface. The idea is if you try to match the kids. Uh, learning style to your teaching and vice versa. So if the kid tends to learn more verbally, well, you want to use more words. If the kid is more of a spatial learner, then try to match the kid's learning to that. So um, a couple problems. First of all, you know, there may be some learning styles, but I think they're, they're a lot more variable even within kids than people think. So the, that's one big problem is this, this idea that some kids are, are more verbal across the board is maybe a little dubious or that more spatial across the board is kind of dubious. That's one big problem. I think the bigger problem, though, is this what sometimes called this matching hypothesis, this idea that if a kid is a verbal learner, you therefore want to teach in a more verbal mode, or if the kid's more of a spatial learner. And uh, so, therefore, if you want to teach kids uh, math concepts, maybe some kids actually learn better by words, and other kids learn better by uh, making shapes of the numbers and things like that, or some kids may be more kinesthetic learners, so maybe you want to have them, if you want to teach them how to how to add, maybe have them get, get in front of the class and make movements, sort of showing how to add numbers together. How, do you must have seen the Onion article about parents of nasal learners feel discriminated against. <laughs> I like that already a lot, yeah. But so good. So what does the research say then? Yeah, mo- most of the research, with a few exceptions, shows that matching 
teaching styles, learning styles doesn't really help learning very much. Doesn't seem to result in much of a boost. So it, it's probably not that useful a strategy. And my bigger concern, actually, and here the research I think admittedly is more mixed, but my bigger concern is I, I worry it may do harm because kids, after all, have to learn to develop their weaknesses. So yep. my my worry is if you teach away from their weaknesses, you might actually allow those weaknesses to get stronger. And that's not very good. You know, the, the analogy I always gave was when I was uh, playing soccer in high school, I was never very good, but I liked to play soccer. And I was on my soccer team a little for a very short while. So I dropped off because I didn't like the coach very much. But 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 I was never good with my left foot. I'm, I'm right, I'm right uh, leg dominant, right foot dominant. And one of the things you learn in playing soccer is if, if, if you're not very good with your left foot, for example, you actually want to play, learn to play to it. You don't want to start ignoring you just it's just going to become weaker, and that's my that's one of my big concerns about this learning style stuff. Is it not only doesn't work, but I think it may in the long run actually backfire because it just encourages people to focus only on their strengths. But to be a well-rounded teacher, a well-rounded employee, you've got to be able to be diverse and, and be versatile. Yes, well, very interesting. Yeah, that's funny. I probably cut out to be an academic. My my organized sports career ended when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go much further either. So, kind of my aptitudes were in other areas. Yeah, so that's really useful. And uh, is there a, a meta-analysis that, uh, or a systematic review that you could point listeners to? I'll put the notes in the chat. I mean, I don't know how many of my listeners are going to go up and look up a meta-analysis, but you know, just in case. Yeah, there have been some good reviews. One was by um, I'll get the exact reference, but I know Hal Pashler and Rohr and a few others did one and in the journal Psychological Science and the Public Interest a bit less than a decade ago where they reviewed all of that evidence. Actually, you know, they should just really get your book because there's 50 of them in there and there are 50 meta-analysis or systematic reviews. It's 2010. Uh, have they asked you for a second edition yet, by the way, of uh, Great Myths? Uh, well, we've been we've been kind of delinquent about that. That's on that's on our list of things to do. It's, um, it's uh, weighing on me because the book is, uh, parts of it are getting a bit outdated and we need to update some of the myths and, and probably pick a couple of new ones. So sure, of course, yeah. Is it still in print? By the way, it's still or, or yeah, fabulous. That's really great, man. That's uh, now almost a decade. Super. All right, let me pick one more. Left brain, right brain. So uh, again, I hear this so often. Okay, so there is an anatomical difference uh, between the left brain and the right brain, and there are functional differences between the left brain and the right brain. So why are we making a mistake when we're talking about left brain people and right brain thing or right brain leadership? Why are we making all these mistakes? Yeah, right. So that's a good question, Paul. I, I think one thing listeners have to keep in mind is that a lot of these myths have a little bit of a kernel of truth in them, and this is one that's probably not entirely wrong, but it's way overblown. So it is true. Going back to some some classic split brain studies of uh, Sperry, who won the Nobel Prize, and Michael Gazzaniga and others, it is true the left uh, and right hemispheres in, in most people tend to have somewhat different specializations. The left hemisphere is a little more specialized for verbal ability and maybe analytical ability. Right hemisphere is a bit more spatial and so on. But th those are only differences in degree. They're not differences in kind. And we know that assuming someone has an intact corpus callosum, which is the big band of fibers that connects the two hemispheres, and an intact anterior commissure, which is another band of fibers, the two hemispheres are constantly in, in contact, constantly communicating with each other. Yeah. And again, these are uh, these are differences that are, are really uh, kind of shades of gray. They're not absolute differences. So it's it's very unlikely that certain people are entirely left-brained or, or entirely right-brained. So right. It doesn't, doesn't quite work that uh that simply, and it also does relate in some ways to the learning styles myth because a lot of teachers and other entrepreneurs will say, oh, gee, let's give this person a test to see whether they're more a left brain or right brain person or something and then try to then give them some advice as to how to proceed with that. It's very unlikely that's going to work because, uh, again, uh, what people forget is that, uh, guess what, we're complicated as, as humans and Rarely are people entirely verbal or entirely spatial, entirely analytical. A lot of these things are very domain-specific, so many of us can be quite analytical in the case of some problems, especially something we know well. And then when it comes to other things, particularly when strong emotion kicks in, when we have motivated reasoning, but it's often oftentimes logic analysis goes out the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All prone to that. Right. So the difference in degree and not in kind. The hemispheres are in communication all the time, and in anything complex, a lot of the brain is working on problems so uh, people aren't i mean is is there some truth to the fact that right brain people are 
have these gross macro are they are they more creative as they'd like to believe well the way i would put it is that uh so i wouldn't put it that way the way i put it is that some people are more creative than others and those people probably do do invest more of their right brain in some in some activities but i'm not sure sort of this relates to a broader problem which we don't talk too much about in that book but some others is Leads to a broader problem that my my good friend Sally Sattel is called neuro redundancy. It's not clear what you what more information you get from that than just knowing the person is creative. We already know some people are more creative than others. I'm not sure invoking the fact that they may have more right brain activation is necessarily telling us a whole lot. Although it may strike some people as more scientific. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk specifically about your favorite out of the fifty great myths of popular psychology that are featured in your book. Which one is the one that you think? I don't know, pick anything you like, is the most valuable or the most insightful or the most damaging or some, one, yeah, some sort of attribute. A, that's a tough one. I, I do get asked that, I'm, and I'm never sure which one to pick. I'll, t- I'll tell you one that I think is uh, one of the most pervasive and maybe arguably one of the most damaging just because it's so much in popular culture is this, again, the, probably has a quirk truth in it, but I think the, the myth, the way I would frame it, is that the major determinant of our happiness is what happens to us. I think that's in right. some way really one of the most pernicious myths, no doubt, in terms of short-term happiness, we all know when, when good things happen to us, if we do well on an exam or get a job or promotion, we're going we're gonna to be happy. But Dan Gilbert and others have written about this far better than, than I have. We often uh, overestimate the uh, longevity of our emotions, and we often think that, gee, all I've got to do if I have, if I'm desperately unhappy in my job, all I've got to do is find a different job because the grass is going to be greener on the other side. Now, that's not to say that if you're unhappy in a job, you should look around. I have. I mean, we all went well. And sometimes you do have to make moves. But I think the mistake people make is most literature shows that the main determinant of our happiness is probably more how we view what happens to us than what actually happens to us objectively. So, yes, this is important. I used to do clinical work as a psychotherapist, and, and I would always encounter certain people who, no matter what job they're in, are always unhappy or whatever relationship they're in is unhappy. And sometimes uh, what you have to realize is, is uh, someone who has that kind of tendency is, yeah, some people maybe are very unlucky and have black clouds walking around, uh, black clouds above their head wherever they go. Sometimes that can happen, but more often than not, what's happening is that people are, are viewing things through particular lenses and yeah. are happy with whatever their life experiences are. And conversely, we all know, also know people who have had horrific life circumstances, and these are Remarkable people, I've known some of them, who managed to stay happy, regardless of what happens to them. So sure. I, I think this myth is pernicious because it can often lead us to look outside of us rather than inside of us. Sure. I think rather than saying, I need to maybe change the way I I, I view the world and, and, and try to find ways of, of coping better and developing more positive attitude, we feel, oh, all I've got to do is find a different boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, job, etc. Sure, or get a car or move to California or wherever. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or in case of parents who are, uh, or individuals who are in unhappy marriage, all we have to do is have kids and, and now we'll suddenly be happy. And, and we know that's not going to work because if anything, marital happiness tends to go down after having kids, at least in the short run. I mean, you tell me if this is right. So this is a hypothesis that I have is that our culture in, in the United States particularly, but also being unhappy is so culturally ag- legitimate. I mean, if you go in the bookstores or if you look at the covers of magazines or if you look at people's displays on social media or on Twitter, there's this tremendous, uh, if you ask people how they're doing, it's like another day in paradise. If you, one of the exercises I do in leadership training is to ask people to describe, you know, their life and their emotional life and it's always this curve that goes up like this there's a, a certain like social legitimacy to being happy and i and what i think and this is my hypothesis please comment is that people get unhappy about being unhappy like there are people who are more melancholy but in our culture there's a sort of they're almost stigmatized to the point of being unhappy about being unhappy if you will what do you make of that as an idea I do think uh, uh, there's some truth to that, Paul. I, Bar- Barbara Ehrenreich and others have written about this. That um, Barbara Ehrenreich, as you may know, yeah, a journalist had, had breast cancer and fortunately survived it, and she experienced this uh, the same kind of thing where, with other cancer survivors and people who are undergoing this, this terrible experience, it, there was almost the sense of cheer up. What's wrong with you? You don't want to be unhappy, and and you know obviously being unhappy is is a lot less fun than being happy. But but after all, I, I tend to 
think that natural selection was fairly wise and imbued us with a, a, a big palette of, of emotions and that sadness plays a role in everyday life and it, it gives it gives richness and, and depth to our experience and sometimes it's adaptive to be unhappy and it's, it's fine to be sad after certain experiences of course if it persists too much that's not good but i i do worry like you that the field of positive psychology which i think has some good things to it i don't think sure it does yeah i think there's there've been some useful insights but i think sometimes it's almost become this field of what's sometimes been derided as this happyology that we want to somehow extirpate all negative emotions like anger and guilt and sadness well it's a somewhat different answer but in our lab we study people who don't have much guilt or shame and they're called psychopaths so being able to to feel guilt, for example, and along with other negative emotions like sadness is, is part yeah. of being a healthy person so long as it doesn't get too extreme. And our affective life is uh, genetically determined to a great extent. Our, our, the level of our neuroticism or the RR, or if, you're so, if you want our baseline level of happiness, there's a genetic correlate to that. Is that am, I, am I wrong? I think I'm correct about that. Uh, there definitely, uh, yeah, I, I would say there is, there's certainly substantial genetic influences on these traits. They're, they're not by any means determined. We can shift. Sure. But some people have argued that for happiness, there is a kind of fairly stable set point that we um, bounce yep. around. Now, yep. that's to say that, that certain event, impactful life events, both good or bad, can't shift our set points around. I, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think that highly effective psychotherapy, although it may take a while, can sometimes shift our set points around. But but it's true that there, there is a kind of stability and mood across all of us, and that many of us, especially over, over long spans of time, if something good happens, we'll feel happy right afterwards, but we'll often revert back to something close to our, our baseline. Yeah, that's the way. I'm, I'm glad you've illuminated that for me. That's the way I sort of understood the research that people who lose their legs may be unhappy for long periods of time, but you revert to something like a baseline. And people who win the lottery, lottery may be briefly very, very happy, but over time they'll revert to their pre-existing belt line, which is culturally determined and it may be genetically determined and it's determined by history and all of those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think that's, I think that's mostly right. There's been, there's been some research questioning how clear cut those conclusions are. It, it probably is true that some very negative life events do shift people downward for long periods of time. Divorces is, is one that uh, sometimes can, can really put people into a spiral for a while. But it's also true that people are a lot more resilient than we often give them credit for. And that, following either really good or really bad events, we often do experience a, a shift in emotion, either up or down, but we oftentimes do kind of go back to that. And the problem is, as Dan Gilbert and others have pointed out, we often forget about that. We often overestimate the um, extent to which our emotions are going to stay the same. So again, if we're in a desperate, unhappy job over and over again, and we're, we can't seem to find any happiness, regardless of what occupation we have, Again, we may forget about the fact that if we if we move to a different job, there's a decent chance that we're going to feel a bit better soon afterwards. But unless we're we're careful in in the way we think about that job and our coping skills, coping styles, we may end up kind of going back to the same level of unhappiness as before. Yeah, I did in previous life a lot of coaching of career people, and their first response being unhappy at work is change work. And, and unfortunately, wherever you go, there you are. More or less, you know, you'll replicate to some extent the relationships and the texture of relationships and your relationship with work will follow you. So I generally speaking discourage people until they develop a certain amount of self-understanding and make sure that their unhappiness is actually context dependent rather than self-dependent, if you will. Or something like that. It's not even uh, for listeners, by the way. I do want to say that the way Professor Lilienfeld talks about things is there's degrees of certainty, and sometimes as a lot of people in the management or coaching profession or something like that, I talk about conclusions as if they're certain and uh, what's certain about science and it's absolutely more certain about psychological science is that we are talking always about degrees of uncertainty and do you think that's more true for the, the psychological sciences the social sciences than it is for the physical sciences or i do i think you put it well i think that's true i don't mean all, all sciences are somewhat probabilistic but i think in, in social science in particular i think that our conclusions have to be somewhat more uncertain and probabilistic Partly because there are just so many other variables that impact our behavior. You know, a carbon atom is pretty much a carbon atom, and um, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, no, I mean, obviously isotopes and things like that. But it's but, <laughs> but, uh, our, our behavior is affected by our uh, other personality traits, our attitudes, our interests, the uh, experiences, life, previous life experiences we've had, our current situations, our our culture, our race, our expectations, 
there's so many, sometimes people criticize us in psychology with some justification about how crappy we are at predicting behavior. We're not very good at it. But sometimes it amazes me that we can predict behavior at all with any any degree of certainty above chance, given how many hundreds of factors are impinging on our behavior at any given time. Right. Righty right. Yes. Yes, I, I, I do wonder. I had a great conversation with Massimo Piliucci about this, about whether, in fact, one way of thinking about it is the social sciences, psych, psychology are where chemistry was in the 1700s or the 1600s, in the sense that we're able to be, our, our understanding of the physical world was, you know, pretty rapid between 1700 and 1900 and our methods uh, improved alongside and whether our social science methods understanding the complexity we just don't have the appropriate technology and tools and methods we might have in 100 years i guess this is an idea i hope i have that social science will evolve and we'll see the kind of breakthroughs that we saw in physics in the beginning of the 20th century what do you think about that uh, kind of a speculative idea but i hope so i'm not sure but <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, yeah it's object of interest. anyway let's talk about your sides anyway that's funny so i'm in the management consulting well not anymore but i used to be a management consultant and um leadership guy and about a decade ago the leadership world went nuts for neuroscience there's a neuroleadership institute there are God knows how many books on neuro coaching. I have people who talk about neuro happiness. I have people who are coaches who talk about neuro reprogramming. So there they are. And I think you use the quote in your book. I think it's from Jonah Lehrer, who says that if Andy Warhol were alive today, he'd be painting brain scans, not Campbell soup cans. Is that right? Is that, is that, is that, is that what he said? That's right. Yeah, it's good. So you wrote a book, which I think is a seminal cautionary. I don't want to say critical because, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's affirming in some place, but a cautionary tale about using neuroscience in neurolaw, neuromarketing, neuroleadership. Why is the current state of science and art, why the current applications of neuroscience, why is that worrisome to you before we sort of get into specifics? Yeah, so I should say up front, I'm glad you framed our book that way because I, I'm, I'm a fan of neuroscience. I'm kind of a neuroscience nerd. I like reading about the brain. It's fascinating. And I think we have made some remarkable advances in terms of technology. And, and we're learning a lot more about the biological correlates of mental illness, which is a big interest of mine and so on. But I also think that one problem we sometimes have in, in psychology and other fields is we allow the, the claims to, to run way ahead of the data. And I think one of the big problems is that there are enormous, not to get too technical here, but there are enormous explanatory gaps between what we know about the brain, what we know about behavior. So we, we, we can often describe what's going on at the neural level fairly well, but how that actually connects up to what we actually do and what our thinking is, is, is we're not even close to that understanding. So the problem is we can, it's, it's interesting to learn about the brain functioning. And we talked about how the different hemispheres work. And you mentioned the amygdala earlier. We know the amygdala plays a role in emotional processing, including fear and actually sometimes even happiness. But how that actually connects up to what we do is is really still mysterious. We, there's so many different levels of analysis and, and, and gaps. So as a result, in the domain of education, for example, learning about how the brain works is wonderful, but does it actually inform educational practices? It's not at all clear that it does in most cases. Same right. Neuro, neuroeducation, the field of neuroeducation. That's right. I, I attended a White House conference a couple of years ago on neural education. I was one of the token skeptics, but <laughs> I listened to I listened to the talks that went on for about two days and they were very interesting, a lot of fascinating talks. I learned some some really interesting things. But I would say that coming out of that conference, although I, I learned some some fun things and met some fascinating people, I was left with a feeling like there was really not a single brain based breakthrough in education or even a brain based You were more more worried than elated, it sounds like to me. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to, so to say, if I, I don't want to summarize a complex thinker's words, it's that, that you're, you think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I think that's, that's one way of saying what you're saying. Well, we're in the middle of the Winter Olympics now. I'd say we're getting ahead of our skis. That's right. We're, we're, <laughs> we're getting way ahead of ourselves. And, and I think we could, even though I think uh, a lot of this, a lot of the neuroscience work is, is fascinating and very exciting. I also think we, we need a bit more humility in that field and a, a bit more understanding that it's going to take a long time before these breakthroughs actually become translated into reality. I know the education field a little bit. The area I know better is, is mental illness because I do work in that field. And there's exciting work 
in the neuroscience of mental illness. I've done a little bit of it myself, more as a, a collaborator because I don't do a lot of direct neuroscience work. And that work is very interesting. But again, I would honestly say, and some of my colleagues might disagree with me, but I would honestly say that I don't think there's been a single neuroscience finding that has directly informed the treatment of any major mental disorder yet. Uh, there, there may be an exception in the case of some mental disorders that may be around the boundaries of neurological disorders like sleep disorders, such as narcolepsy. There, that, that may be one, one exception. But when it comes to, to what we call the classic mental disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, panic disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, conditions that, that can be very impairing and, and cause a lot of distress and impairment for some people. I don't think that any neural work has really told us, okay, what do we, what do we now do differently in terms of conditions? We are closer on uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. We are closer on the degenerative diseases to neuroanatomy and neuroscience. Right. But, but we're, not, we're absolutely not there. But we are closer, it seems to me. Is that correct? I, I don't yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm not an expert in those, but talking to my colleagues who do work on those areas, I think we're getting closer. But even there with Alzheimer's, uh, they're still not clear what uh, what's actually going on. So we, we know that there are amyloid plaques in the brain, but is are those causing the disease? We don't know. Uh, or are they just epithelates? Are they yeah. artifacts? Yep. Does uh, if we remove amyloid plaques from from the brain, will that cure Alzheimer's? The the evidence is still up up for grabs. Yeah. So let's talk about like something specific. Again, I guess is it your view that the people who are doing, say, fMRI research, you know, functional magnetic resonance producing these brain scans, is it them without kind of, I don't know, wanting to ascribe blame for this? Is it people like who live in the management world and the education world and the world of neural law, the marketers and the lawyers, are they getting ahead of themselves more for, are they trying to take the the findings of scientists who are applied neuroscientists and trying to apply them to psychological phenomena such as behavior and mental events are the people who are doing the neuroanatomy and the neurophysiology and the work on neurotransmitters is that a robust canon and it's taken by people outside who say oh well look at this finding that's remarkable that means that is that is that what is that kind of what's happening or are the neuroscientists themselves uh if you want jumping ahead of the game because i've i've always the stuff I've read, so they're always very cautiously expressed findings. I put uh, I put a little blame on some neuroscientists, frankly, but I think the substantial majority of the ones I know are, are very good scientists. They're very cautious and careful. Like any scientists, uh, neuroscientists sometimes get ahead of their um, of themselves and, and don't qualify claims accordingly. But I'm not sure they're any worse than any of us in psychology, for example, or other fields. I think the bigger problem there because there are a lot of people doing terrific, very high quality, very rigorous neuroscience work, both structural imaging and functional imaging, which you described. Yeah. But I think the bigger problem is that a lot of people in these other fields see this stuff as a way of making their field more scientific, and they, they latch onto this stuff because, the after all, if people see a brain image, they think, wow, oh, this is – and my stuff was fuzzy before, like coaching, education. That was always kind of a little bit yeah. ineffable and clear, but, ah, now I can I can hitch my wagon to something that's real science, and, and I can show neurons firing and stuff like that. I think that's that's the danger is they may they may think they're more to be had than is is presently there. Yeah, there are there's a guy who works in my field called David Rock. I mean, he's in my field broadly speaking management and uh, he's written some very good books and he's seen as the kind of high temple of neuroleadership. And what I've said is that when his what he says is close to neuroscience, when he stays close to the science, he's not useful at all. And when he's far away from the science, some of his models like scarf and ages are actually super useful models, I think, for understanding gross macro pro psychological processes. He's very useful, but it's got absolutely no relationship with neuroscience. <laughs> so uh, that's my fear is that the more use, the more, the closer to the science it gets, the less useful it becomes. Uh, talk us through your thing about you gave a great example of a couple in counseling. I thought that was great. I actually stole that from my book. Yeah. I think that would be illustrative for. For listeners right well yeah i think of a couple in counseling that was having a lot of conflict I, I um it might be tempting to stick them both in in brain scans and look at how their brains uh, get active or, or deactivated in response to uh, to different statements they make but I, i'm not sure it would really help very much i think it might be, be worse than useless because it would be a, a distraction i think of a couple's having problems in counseling right now maybe things will change one day but 
right now, I think the most appropriate level of analysis and the most appropriate level of intervention is figuring out what they're fighting about. And uh, yeah, maybe a temptation to think, gee, all we have to do is get inside their brains. Yeah, but, but right now, that's not really going to. It's not going to really tell us a whole lot more than we already know. So again, uh, if we were to find out, for example, that their amygdalas become more yeah. active when they get angry at each other, or uh, yeah, uh, that, that we kind of already know the amygdala plays some role in fear and negative emotions, and, and knowing the amygdala gets activated during arguments probably isn't telling us a whole lot new. But so what, right? Exactly. So it's like, so what? All right. I mean, I I I say as honey, when you don't take out the trash, my oxytocin, my serotonin pathways are inhibited, and my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex can't cope. Have I just helped or made it <laughs> or made it worse? Right. It's wasted our time. I think because we kind of do that already. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, not to get too technical, but I think sometimes we tend to confuse description with explanation because what's really yeah. happening there. If you say, honey, when I feel close to you, my oxytocin levels start firing. Well, yeah, that's, that's probably some truth to that, but we know oxytocin plays a role in social social bonding. So what we're probably doing without realizing is we're just describing what's happening, but at a different right. level of analysis. Yeah. And not a not a useful level of analysis. I mean, I I use the metaphor, maybe I'm wrong about this, but does it does understanding the formula, the chemical formula for converting octane into carbon dioxide and water that happens in the internal combustion engine help you drive a Ferrari? That's no, right. It no, it doesn't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we all have this experience where you go to an auto mechanic or something, or where I have this thing with the, you talk to some people in IT and they're trying to explain why your computer isn't working and they go into all these, this great level of depth about what's actually happening in the hardware. So I don't need to know that. Just tell me what buttons to push, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It doesn't really matter. And it may, again, one day it may, one day we may be able to bridge that huge explanatory gap between the brain hardware and the brain software, but we're, we're nowhere, nowhere near there. So is there any usefulness now at the, the fields of neuromarketing, neurolog? I mean, a lot of what people are trying to do is connect anatomical structures of the brain, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, to psychological events, mental events, and behaviors. I'm open to it. What, what, what mistake are they making when, they're try, when they try and connect neuroanatomy to behavioral and mental events? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They're not all making mistakes. I think what I would say is they may be premature. I think that's the big problem is that right. um, they, we may not always be there yet. Now, that's not to say that I, I think there is nothing potentially to neuromarketing and neural law. I think it's overhyped, but, but I don't think it's it's necessarily uh, wrong. So neuromarketing, for example, I think it's possible that partly because many of us don't often have a lot of insight into our feelings and some of us have a hard time describing our feelings in some cases. It's possible that maybe brain activation, for example, sure. to a commercial or something or ad or something might sometimes be able to better predict our liking of a product than merely right. supports. I think that's possible. Sometimes also people are reluctant to tell someone in a focus group what they actually think about something and the brain imaging may, may reveal that information. In the case of neural law, it's possible. I think there's some suggestive evidence for this that that uh, brain activation may in some cases be able to detect lying better than, for example, the standard polygraph machine, which isn't very good at doing that. It's possible that maybe there, there are subtle brain activations that can pick up the emotions associated with lying better. I'm not close to that. I suspect that uh, a lot of those advances, to the extent they're there, are pretty small and incremental. Mm -hmm. We should benefit from them. I think that it's very likely to me that, that the brain is going to provide some additional information above and beyond, for example, people's self-reports, what people can say about themselves. But uh, I, I'm, I'm dubious it's going to provide a panacea anytime soon. Right. Yeah, there's a, a philosopher, I, I may have even stolen this quote from Jerry Fodor, who said, uh, he just passed away, actually, a, a month ago or something like that, uh, who said, if the mind happens in space at all, it happens somewhere north of the neck. So why does it matter how far north? In other words, when we're studying mental events, you know, the importance of which p bits of the brain are involved are less than important. Well, he says unimportant. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I go quite as far as saying unimportant. But again, I think what we're often doing in these pieces is we're, we're kind of doing geography. We're kind of mapping brain activations onto different behaviors. That's, I think, quite interesting and very important. It's good to get a map. But how much that actually helps us to explain or predict behavior, I think, is still not always clear. Good, 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 good. So let's, if we can, I think, 
turn to your new book. We've covered uh, 50 Myths and we've covered a little bit about Brainwashed. I, I want to recommend Brainwashed to, to people who are, first of all, it will help you understand neuroscience and, and cognitive effective neuroscience and some of the field really well. I think it explains at a level which a, a layperson can can access very easily. But but also, you know, it sounds sounds a cautionary tale. So if you're in a field of leadership or in the field of marketing or, or in the field of executive development or education, and you spend a lot of time, you know, invested in, I, you know, I, I always admire people that go to these conferences because they have a hunger for being on the leading edge. And, and there's, you know, some something admirable about that. A lot of the people who are in my business world who are into the neuroscientific aspects of it, I'm not sure there are any neuroscientists, but anyway, the people who are into that are people who are hungry for, you know, expanding the field of your knowledge. So I want to kind of acknowledge that. But anyway, if you want to read something that's cautionary and make sure you don't go too far too fast, then I recommend Brainwashed to listeners. And I'll put a, a link to the book in my show notes. But uh, let's talk about your new book. Is it your new book? Is it your newest book, Facts and Fissions and Mental Health? Is that the the most recent? Gosh, it's only, only a year, only a year old. You can't have written another one since. That's right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's most, that's, we, we had one other book that's more on, uh, we call the replication crisis, but that's more for science nerds. But in terms of the general public, that's, that's kind of our big new book. Yeah. Well, good. So, uh, I have not got a copy of it yet. So talk us through it. Talk us about why you wrote it and, and what you think is important in it, please. Yeah. So what these, uh, what this book actually mostly is, is just a compilation of columns that, my my good friend and collaborator Hal Arkowitz wrote for the magazine Scientific American Mind, and we also included some new columns, sort of updated and fill in some of the gaps. And what we did in this column and what the book does is to, in some ways, go a bit beyond our 50 myths book and, and, and tackle both well-supported data, but also but also common misunderstandings, misconceptions, myths about mental illness and its treatment. So that's what we do. So we, we tackle... Yeah common myths about things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, suicide, and so on. There, there's so many of these. One, one that's timely here in the U.S. is the, uh, the link between mental illness and, and violence. Studies show that many people in the general public think that the substantial majority of people who are mentally ill are, are physically violent. And we know that's it's not true. That the overwhelming majority of people with mental illness, or including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, are not violent. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, when they are... Uh, when violence does occur, they're much more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators. Now, that's also interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and the data are very consistent on that. And we're, and we're probably, for schizophrenia, we're probably looking at well under 5% of them will, will ever do anything violent. Now, that's not to say that, like many myths, there's a kernel of truth, that it is true that people with severe mental illnesses, particularly if they have paranoia, and also if they're using drugs or drinking, are at somewhat higher risk. So there's probably a somewhat increased risk, but... But again, at an absolute level, the overwhelming majority of people with severe mental illness will, will never commit any violence. And again, that has implications for, for example, gun debates. And, and that I can't resolve here, but many people think, oh, all we have to do to solve the problem of violent crime in the U.S. is to improve mental health care. That may be part of the problem, that may be part of the solution, but I'm not sure that's going to be sufficient. So that's that's one of the many myths that we, we tackle, and we try to do our best to replace some of the misinformation with, with more accurate information. So let's talk about something that, I mean, I've, you know, been in treatment for depression, not in treatment, you know, sort of counseling for depression and you know, various times during my life. So what are some of the myths about depression that listeners might find illuminating? Yeah, so we, we do talk about that. So I think there are a lot of myths about depression. I think maybe the most pernicious myth, perhaps, is that depression is just uh, a kind of sad mood. I think a lot of people don't quite realize how serious and, and debilitating a, a true clinical depression can can be. And and I think that's a very common mistake people make, like, oh, you're just in a sad mood, get over it. And, and Sure, I, get over it, get out and do something. Why don't you get out and do something? Go enjoy yourself. People forget that, that's right, people forget that in, in a serious depression, what we call anhedonia, which is a serious inability yeah. to experience loss or interest or pleasure is, is one of the most common features. It's not invariable, but it's certainly one of the most common sure. features of depression. That's certainly one myth. I think people oftentimes underestimate how severe, impairing, distressing true depression can be. I think there are also myths about the causes of depression. A lot of people think that depression is caused by a, a simple 
chemical imbalance in the brain, and that seems to be a gross oversimplification. It's not like there's, although there may be certain, undoubtedly there are biological correlates of depression, and there there may be very subtle kinds of imbalances in the brain. It's not a simple chemical imbalance, like all we got to do is add more serotonin to the brain or something, and that's going to change everything. It's not not that simple. So that's uh, I think. Oh, we wish. Don't we wish it were right? Don't we wish it were? Yeah, and I think another big myth, by the way, is that which I see very often is that medicate well myths go multiple ways but one common myth is that medications for example selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like prozac and so on are all yeah. you need to treat depression and i think they can be helpful there was a, a meta-analysis a kind of quantitative review that just came out in the journal lancet that does suggest that these medications can be more helpful than than placebo or dummy pills but by the same token they but not by much, right? You know, that's a funny they, thing. There's, there's probably about a 20, 25% edge above and beyond the placebo yeah. sugar, but which is not trivial, but it's not always gigantic. Yeah. But be that as it may, I think they can play a role, and I think they do work for many people, but the literature also is very consistent in showing that, that good psychotherapy adds substantially to the effectiveness of those medications. So especially for, for moderate to severe depression, probably a combination of medication, evidence-based psychotherapy is going to be most effective. Yeah, that's what I've read. That basically, between the the two of them, if you get depression in a pincer effect, that you can actually be quite efficacious in treatment of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's good. So, what about addiction? What are some of the the most harmful myths about addiction? Yeah, so we we, t- we do touch on addiction as well, and and we do touch in particular on addiction treatments, and there are a lot of myths about those as well. So. This is when I come out of the closet. I haven't had a drink or a controlled substance in 25 years. So, <laughs> so, and I started in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what you're taught in Alcoholics Anonymous is that only Alcoholics Anonymous and only 100% abstinence. Yeah. You're sober. And, you know, I'll tell you, Scott, just personally, I'm sort of glad I thought that mm-hmm. back then. I don't believe that now. I abstain. I haven't changed my abstinence practice. But I'm sort of glad that for two or three years, even though it's a false belief, that it was actually a very helpful false belief. <laughs> so what's the, what's the state of the science on addiction recovery and abstinence? As long as it works for you, just go with it, right? I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, the fact is you don't know, though. That's unfortunate. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. so the, uh, that's, that's always been a very contentious topic and, and a very controversial one. That gets- and you get people who are longtime sober who will get really upset if oh, you say oh, that. Oh, yeah, can, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, what really I upset. say is I think abstinence only interventions my reading literature is, is they probably are, are often a good idea for a very very severe people with very very severe alcohol use disorder so yeah i think, I think uh for, the, for people who where it's very very severe obviously they want to consult with their therapist consult with doctors but that may be in some cases the best option however what's not true is the view that uh, abstinence is always the best goal and we know that there are clearly a number of people who can return to moderate or controlled drinking and do that successfully. Yeah. Not everybody can pull it off, but a lot of people can. So the, um, I, I think that, I think that's an oversimplified view. Um, but again, it, it, there is a core of truth in it. And it, it's a kind of thing you really have to, th- to think through carefully with your physician, with your therapist and, and so on. The other, I think for me, the, the my concern I have is that, some individuals may fall prey to what's been termed the abstinence violation effect. Ah, uh, yes. In some ways it could actually backfire that because after all, there's a difference, as, as they often say, there's a difference between a lapse and a relapse. And even when someone's trying not to, to drink again, really the fact that they might lapse into having a drink or two doesn't necessarily mean in all cases that they're going to now become alcoholic again. And the absence violation effect is the fact that there's actually some evidence suggesting that once if people really have a very, very strong abstinence goal, if they have one drink, they, they might figure, oh, okay, I've blown it. I might as well just kind of keep drinking. Fuck it. Or something. That's it. Yeah. That's AA. That's Alcoholics Anonymous dogma. That you know, what they say is the first drink does the damage. And one drink. And that's, a, that's, a, yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's an unhelpful, na- I mean, there might be some truth to it as, as with all these things, but I mean, it's an unhelpful narrative to believe that. Oh, I had a glass of champagne at my daughter's wedding. Now I'm forever fucked. You know, now I'm now I'm an alcoholic again. That could be un- unhappy. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, people go further in addiction recovery, and they say that you actually need to believe in a higher power, which 
You know, I, for a time, did. And uh, again, I would call that a false belief now. I don't want to be offensive to people who do, but I would call it a false belief now. But I'm bloody glad that for the first three years of recovery that I had a sort of a false belief these false beliefs. So it's kind of an interesting thing as someone who's interested in reason, rationality, and science that I had these, what I think are probably false beliefs, but my interpretation now is that they're actually very useful to have them. So That's right. Um, and I think for, for listeners, I think it's important to know that Alcoholics Anonymous and some of these other treatments, Narcotics Anonymous, I think can be helpful for some people. I think literature shows that they, they can be helpful. So I don't want to dispute that. I think AA can be helpful for a lot of purposes. I think particularly the, the emotional support that it provides and, and, um, uh, the listening it provides and so on, some of the skills it provides can be very, very helpful. But I, I also think it's important for people to know there, there are multiple options that seem to work for alcohol treatment. There's no, there's in the, in the United States, you won't find that, but you won't find that. I mean, the, the addiction recovery world is dominantly 12 step influences in the United States, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But there, there are other options too. Yeah. There are, uh, I think increasingly there's, there's much more uh, variety, I think, in the U.S. than there once, once was. Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I thought the community was the most important thing. The fact that I could hang around with a bunch of people and have a good time and talk through stuff that was uncomfortable or unpleasant or painful and not, not be, I thought that was by far extraordinarily useful, but yeah. So, so support plays a big role in, in recovery and, and, and even just knowing that other people will be a there to support you and B might kind of give you a hard time if you, if you don't, uh, get your act together, that kind of thing could be immensely helpful in, uh, in recovery. Well, it sounds like a great book. And really, uh, with all of the stigma and all of the false beliefs about mental illness, you know, we're no, perhaps exacerbating the problem or missing out on important treatments. And so I'm really grateful that you've stuck the book out there. I'm going to get a hold of it myself and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. So what, what are you, before we leave, what are you up to now? What, uh, what's, what's uh, cooking? For you, and where can I guess more importantly, where can listeners find you if they want to find your stuff? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm at Emory University in Atlanta, and um, you're a northeastern guy, though, aren't you? You're yeah, from, that's oh. right. That's right. That's exactly right. I'm, I'm from New York City originally. Grew up a, a couple of blocks away from a, a man who's been on the news occasionally. A man named uh, what's his name? Donald J. Trump. Yeah, grew up. <laughs> <laughs> You're from Queens. A few blocks away from him in Jamaica States, New York. <laughs> right, great. Yeah, very good. Uh, uh, one of my friends. But you didn't. You didn't go into real estate. Uh, Not go to real estate. That's no. That's that's nothing I ever had an interest or aptitude in. But yeah. Um, but I'm at um, every University of Atlanta, so so people can can contact me. So what am I working on? We uh, we're doing a lot of stuff in our lab. So in our lab, we do a lot of work on uh, psychopathic personality and uh, narcissistic personality. Something that may have some some relevance to today's politics. And we also are getting very interested in the psychology of, of cognitive biases, something you've covered in your podcast. And, and yeah. in particular, we're interested in, um, we haven't really done too much work on this, but we're beginning to get quite interested in, in personality variables, attitudinal variables that might mitigate a, against cognitive biases, like intellectual humility, for example, and, and a, a variable that uh, my friend Gina Gorlin calls cognitive integrity. So, and are there ways of maybe training people to become more humble in a way that might diminish their risk of, of their own biases or at least falling prey to those biases? Wow, that's something that I've not read. I mean, something I've studied it in enormous, probably studied it in enormous detail is the work of Kahneman and subsequent, and well, it's a very hot area, generally speaking, right now. And actually, there are attitudinal adjustments that people can make non-trivial attitudinal well, adjustments because no. <laughs> uh, i mean our world today is full of people who are dogmatically sure about climate change who are i mean there are very few people in the world that can speak authoritatively about climate change uh but everybody seems to have like extremely vociferous opinions about it and similarly true with people of familiarity with gun research or the problems we face today so there's enormous polarization polarization of ignorant people yelling at each other from both sides so if you can find a way to help us with that in an interview was asked if he could wave a magic wand what cognitive flaw frailty would he most want to get rid of and he said overconfidence and i think you're exactly right we, we live in a culture now where we seem to live in a culture of certainty where everyone's everyone's sure about things, even though if they even if they've had almost no training in it. And I think that's uh, that's right. But in all fairness, we as a field, and, and I'm guilty of this too. We, we've focused a, a lot on biases, but but very little on what's been called debiasing. There, there's only research on debiasing, and a lot more interest in it. But we don't know all that much about how to 
how to do it. I think one of the challenges to debiasing is, is motivation. So I think even if we were to develop good debiasing interventions, would people really care about it? So if, if there was a very gun, strong gun control advocate or gun control supporter, either Does one, he care about yeah. the evidence that might question their views, are they going to be interested in looking at it? That's the harder part. And that's, that's one reason I think why we're actually getting interested in things like intellectual humility and so on, trying to see if that can be trained up, is I think one may almost need a whole and one may have to start, I don't know the answer to this, but one may have to start very early in education and, and really try to imbue that in, in kids, sort of an attitude that part of being a, a good citizen, part of being a, a educated person, a wise person, is being able to see perspectives that differ from one's own. I don't think that's something we're doing very well at in educating kids these days. Will you send me a link to you know, what you would consider the most accessible or interesting piece on debiasing uh, by email so I can put it in the show notes. I'm certainly going to pursue it myself. I'm writing a book called Truth Wars, which is sort of about rational. I mean, I'm interested in how truth is corrupted by the media, but also by corporations. You know, how we're systematically lied to in areas like tobacco, which still costs half a million deaths a year. Somehow or another, magically, it's still it's still legal. So that's the book and also the polarization in our our politics, we can't make decisions democratically now because we don't have a share. Is unemployment higher or lower? Is the climate hot or cold? Or questions like that. So I really do th do anticipate trouble. So this is so relevant to to my research and thinking. I'll say, and I'd, sure. I'd be very, I'd be very, I'd be very, very grateful. You've been super generous with your time. I really appreciate. I really appreciate. It. You're doing such great stuff. Are you now an experimental psychologist? Because uh, I read your work as someone who's more of a, uh, uh, almost more of a ph philosopher. You're at the end of things. Are you doing experimental psychology in your lab right now? Yeah, we do. We, we, we don't so much run experiments. We do a little bit of that. We, we do more of what's called correlational work. We kind of look at naturally occurring differences. But yeah, we probably, probably 75% of the stuff we do is actually research. So we, you know, we measure people in the, we study college students. We measure people in the community. We sometimes don't work on prisoners and so on. And we, we give them all kinds of measures and study them and, and prisoners like like undergraduates, those prisoners. <laughs> We're a captive audience, after all. So, so, we, uh, so my my students are all doing doing actual uh, work where we're testing them on personality traits, and again, we're getting interested in. And not just traits like uh, more negative or maladaptive traits like psychopathic personality, but maybe things that are a bit more on the positive end of the spectrum, like humility and so on. That's great. Well, look, I want to thank you enormously for your time. We'll, we'll stop it there. Thanks. Uh, thank you, by the way. We're out now. So I just, uh, it's so grateful. It was just such an illuminating conversation for me. And uh, you speak as uh, with authority uh, and humility, which is something we need more of in the damn world, don't we? I don't know about that, but I try. Yeah, it's much appreciated. Good luck with everything. I'll put thank links you. to all your books in the show notes. If there's anything, you know, anything small or large I could do for you, please, please let me know. I really appreciate your generosity. You asked great questions and, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We could do it again at some point. So. All right. Thank you, Scott. I'll, Go I'll well. send you a link to some devising stuff uh, over the weekend. Fabulous. Take, take, have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott Paul. Great seeing you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In this section of the show, I get to do something really interesting. Usually, I present books that I'm reading or books from authors or books I recommend or movies I recommend or documentaries I recommend. But today, I'm going to be hosting an event, and that's what I'd like to put your way. It's a free event. It's going to be a Zoom seminar. And it's going to be with one of my earlier guests called Paul Levinson. And if you recall, Paul Levinson and I talked about fake news. He's an expert on fake news. He's been on CNN. He's been on the O'Reilly Factor. He's, you know, one of the leading commenters on fake news, on the phenomenon and uh, where we might be going with it and what some of the troubles are and, and some, of the, um, some of the ways we need to think about getting in front of, out in front of fake news before it destroys, you know, the, the fact base of our society, the basis on which we make our decisions. So that event is going to be the evening, Wednesday, the 28th. I'll be more precise about the time, a bit closer. It's going to be Paul Levinson. It's going to be uh, on Zoom. I'm going to limit it to 25 people. It's going to be interactive. So you'll be able to do an ask me anything. You'll be able to ask he or I any question that you like in fake news or about what's hot on Netflix or anything that catches your fancy. So what I'd like you to do, if you'd like to attend that event, to send me an email, find my email on my website, paul at paulgibbons.net, www.paulgibbons.net, find an email, drop me an email. Let me put you on the list of invitees. I'm going to cap it at 25 because otherwise I think it's going to be too cumbersome. And um, yeah, I look forward to having listeners uh, on the show. It'll be uh, just really fantastic chance to hear firsthand from 
listeners what they think of the show that I did with Paul Levinson and you know other shows we've done. So very excited to do that. Do send me an email if you'd like to attend. And thanks. That's all for now. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place. Thank you.